विजय गोखले मेकिंग ऑफ अ प्रोटेस्ट डिप्लोमैट लुक्स बैक हेलो वेलकम टू द शो Thank you, Manjula. Yeah. So uh, maybe I should read the um, you know read the flap so that the listeners can have an idea of what uh, what the book is about. Yeah. Sure. More than three decades later, the Tiananmen Square incident refuses to be forgotten. The events that occurred in the summer of 1989 would not only set the course for China's politics, but would also redefine its relationship with the world. China's message was clear it remained committed to market oriented reform but it would not tolerate any challenge to the supremacy of the Chinese Communist Party in return for economic prosperity the chinese have surrendered some rights to the state a democratic future seems far away vijay gokhale then a young diplomat serving in beijing was a witness to the drama that unfolded in tiananmen square This unique account brings an Indian perspective on a seminal event in China's history that the Chinese government has been eager to have the world forget. And I think you've really brought the brought the Indian perspective out because the perspective that the world generally knows is the Western perspective. And you've kind of like uh, what I found interesting about the book was that you kind of dismantle that a lot. So talk about that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Manjula. Uh, and thank you for having me on this uh, podcast uh, manjula uh, this was for me uh, both a personal experience because i was in my 20s uh, scarcely out of university uh, as much as an experience uh, in diplomacy because i had just joined the indian foreign service and this was the first major event of international proportions that i was covering Okay. Uh, and in the 30 years that have elapsed since this event or these 50 days when the tiananmen protests took place have stayed in my mind mm-hmm. and uh, i have often wondered which is the proper narrative the western narrative of course was that this was a great democratic upsurge that the chinese people who were tired of 30 years or more of communism were wanting to throw off the yoke of communism and to join the free world and that the movement for democracy and freedom was brutally suppressed with the use of tanks by the people's liberation army hmm. on the other hand having lived in beijing during that period i also heard the chinese version the chinese version was very different they said there was no democratic movement the chinese people were entirely happy with the communist party but there were some bad elements which they described as black hands whose only objective was to overthrow the communist party and the socialist system hmm. now over the years when thinking of this i often used to wonder is there a third narrative uh, hmm. different from this and that was the real objective of writing this book because in the process of my reading and talking and researching i realized that this was neither a democratic movement in the way that the west was describing it nor was it simply a few people in china 
intent on creating trouble. It was actually a multi-layered event. At one level, a problem within the Communist Party and a challenge to the party from within. At another level, heightened public expectations from the Chinese people after 30 years of turmoil and the inability of the party to understand and deal with those expectations. And of course, at a third level, the issue of how China was dealing with the outside world. Now, this somewhat complex and very layered um, uh, situation, I wanted to reduce this to something which is readable to the ordinary Indian citizen, somebody who's interested in China, but doesn't have much information about China and also doesn't want to read a dry academic work or a book yes. which is packed full of research, but which is simply uh, something which becomes a chore. So mm. it was a, a bit of a tough write because I had to balance readability and accessibility for the ordinary Indian with mm. Uh, a fair amount of detail because I didn't want to make this a personal memoir. I didn't want this to be a me thing. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I uh, hope that I have achieved that balance and I would be really delighted if I have achieved that balance. But that, of course, is something that um, our um, uh, the public has to decide upon. Your readers hmm. have to decide upon. Yes, you have kept yourself out of it. It's, there's no me, me in it, so, which is which is what makes it interesting. Though you know, one knows that you you have witnessed these events. Like when you're saying from the, from the apartment, you could see this uh, avenue and things like that. So you know, you know, the reader knows that you've been there and you were witness to these events. But there's no, you know, pushing in of yourself. So that's uh, that's good, I guess. You know. But uh, I was wondering, but also what I got from the book really was an insight into the Chinese. I mean, I don't know whether one can get insights into such a large nation, but as a people, they seem kind of, I don't know, maybe we are also given to that, but into given to sort of intellectual, um, how does one put it, uh, uh, contortions, <laughs> I mean, you know. Well, um one thing I try to do in the book is break down a few popular perceptions or myths that Indians harbor about China and the Chinese. Hmm. Among them is the sense or the belief that the Communist Party of China is a monolith, that hmm. within the party there is no democracy, there is no difference of opinion, there are no factions struggling for power. Hmm. Whereas, in fact, the entire history of the Chinese Communist Party from its founding in 1921 is the hmm. story of how factions within the party have shaped its politics. And hmm. although there have been dominant personalities, people like Chairman Mao Zedong or Deng Xiaoping, or hmm. in, in this time that we all live in, President Xi Jinping, but yes. that does not automatically mean that there are no divergent opinions, there are no views, there are no groups against mm. these people. So that mm. I think is a myth that I try to uh, sort of take apart in my book. The mm. second thing I try to take apart is this view that was certainly held about China in my generation, uh, but mm. I don't know whether the younger generation in India holds this, about the Chinese people being somewhat inscrutable and not emotional. 
In fact, uh, China, like India, is a long civilization. It's a great civilization. And uh, a great amount of creativity exists in the people of China as it does in our own people. And they are an emotional people. And the entire movement that occurred in Tiananmen was born out of emotion. First, uh, for grief and sympathy, uh, because a figure like Hu Yaobang, who had... Mm -hmm in a sense, taken China out of the Cultural Revolution and put it onto a saner path had passed away. After that disappointment that the party felt that instead of them being sympathetic and empathetic with a deceased figure, the party was looking upon their protests as some kind of a counter-revolution. And finally, of course, public anger. Anger both because the party didn't seem to understand their concerns, whether it was employment, jobs, freedom of speech, whatever it was, but also Mm -hmm. anger because the party characterized their movement as Mm -hmm. a counter-revolutionary rebellion and they Mm -hmm. saw themselves as the flag bearers for Chinese nationalism. The students in China and for that matter, South Korea, North Korea, Japan, East Asia in general, have always been at the forefront of national movements. And therefore, I think, uh, in a sense, the the book tries to also break down the myth that the Chinese people are different from us, for instance. I think they are as emotional, um, they are as intelligent, they are as creative. But of course, there are societal differences. And these societal differences that uh, we need to reconcile with. But they have emotions and that's what I tried to bring out in the book as well. Hmm. Okay. Okay. But also what comes out, I mean, like while I was reading it, I was thinking, oh my God, you know, of course it's as a result of somebody who uh, lives in a, uh, you know, an electoral democracy. And I was thinking that, you know, their system where the Chinese Communist Party system seems much more cutthroat, you know. At least, uh, I mean, that's what comes out, you know, with all the internal uh, sort of purgings and uh, battles. Yes, well, I think uh, the style is different. Their politics is different. Uh, They play it out within the party, whereas we play it out in public, in parliament, in the media, on the national stage, as it were. But uh, their politics can also be uh, very cutthroat, as you said. Uh, hmm. the, the attempt to seize power within the party is a continuous process. And hmm. uh, I guess that uh, the whole idea of purges, for instance, um, hmm. is, is part of the process where one faction tries to dominate another. Uh, hmm. That having been said, um, I think the main, uh, one of the main points I wanted to make in my book was that hmm. Uh, It is therefore important for us not to assume that a particular decision taken by the Chinese at any point of time has unconditional support within the country, which is what we seem to think of. Uh, Mm. In fact, we also uh, seem to presume that while outsiders looking at us see a whole lot of differences in the way we act, in the way we talk, in our politics and so on, Um, Mm. uh, which is also not the case because there are certain common threads that run through India and Indians. In the same Mm. way, uh, to imagine that all Chinese people think the same way because the leadership is projecting a certain point of view uh, is not correct. And 
the book is interesting because this was perhaps a fleeting moment in the history of modern china when we got to see it the difference between china and india in terms of politics is that whereas ours is open theirs is behind closed doors those doors are never opened to the outsider let alone to a foreigner but in these 50 days they let down their guard all doors and windows were thrown open and all of us got a peek into what was happening inside uh, it embarrassed them they have shut doors after that we have never again had a chance to take a look but whatever little opportunity we got uh, mm-hmm. and that is what the book is about uh, showed mm-hmm. us that in in fact they are not monolithic and we should therefore not assume that any policy or any program that the chinese government talks about is enthusiastically supported by all the 1.4 billion uh china <laughs> hmm. hmm so let's talk a bit more about this self criticism and criticism sessions are really fascinating i mean i i was i really stopped and read it a couple of times so talk about that well i think the uh the beauty of the chinese communist system is how it does its messaging you know hmm. we live in a democracy and hmm. therefore we take it for granted that if we want to message the larger audience we can either hold political rallies or we can give interviews to the media or mm. we can meet small groups of people and through them uh, we can pass messages but always our leaders and our leadership is visible uh, you hear them at first hand they they campaign yes. now in china that's not the case uh, even for senior government officials it is difficult to meet the leadership and the leadership in china is distinct from the government so for instance whereas the cabinet minister in the union government in india is an extraordinarily powerful person a she of he has daily access to the prime minister uh, regularly has meetings of the councils of ministers and in her or his field they make policy in china the cabinet minister is a bureaucrat the real power lies in the politburo and the politburo don't are not accessible to the people therefore messaging is in terms of words not in terms of public appearances and speeches now it is in this context we have to see criticism and self criticism uh, because criticism in a sense allows the entire party and also eventually china's public opinion to understand the direction in which the party is going so an individual who is criticized or the policy of an individual that is criticized is an indication to the chinese people that something is afoot or something is amiss and that there may be a change in policy coming or even a change in personnel self criticism on the other hand is an interesting way of discipline within the party in other words if you have made a mistake you are given the chance to criticize yourself in public by public i don't mean in front of the chinese public i mean in front of the party uh, and these are all well orchestrated criticisms and in that manner you rehabilitate yourself so if you read the epilogue of my book for instance uh, one of the main protagonists uh, chao ziyang the general secretary was given an opportunity for self criticism but chose not to take it and was therefore punished whereas yes. the other senior leader hu chi li uh, who was uh, the rising star at one stage in chinese politics 
uh, he was he made that self criticism and as a result he was rehabilitated in other words he was never allowed to hold key positions ever again but he was given a ministership all his perquisites were retained he was given a modicum of respect in society and he was in that sense free to do what he liked so uh, criticism is uh, is a messaging to the party and the public self criticism is a mode of discipline now of course from our perspective this is a bit odd uh, because yeah. that is because we take democracy for granted we make our criticism and our self criticism in public uh, and therefore we find it strange that this has to be done inside a closed room but that yes. is the style in which the chinese communist party operates and for china watchers that is diplomats in embassies journalists in the media governments and so on this is one means of knowing what is happening inside that system because otherwise as i said you have no access to the leadership they don't talk to you they don't even talk to their own people and therefore there's no other means of knowing it so this is a sort of interesting aside which uh, does give some insight out how uh, in, into how china works yeah and the, this particular paragraph i think it's on page 37 is really fascinating such criticism and self criticism sessions are common in communist china they are intended to humiliate the subjects of the criticism sessions and give them an opportunity to acknowledge their mistakes during mao's times these sometimes ended up with the victims being maimed or killed indeed indeed in fact uh, a number of senior leaders uh mm-hmm. had to face uh criticism and self criticism exercises uh in fact uh they were paraded in public with placards hung around their necks uh, they were made to squat and then they were made to admit that they had made mistakes uh now even the senior most leadership um including uh, the father of the current president xi jinping was not exempt from this when yes. uh, mao zedong turned against him and mm. in fact we uh, interestingly even have an incident where a senior indian diplomat uh, who went on to become foreign secretary in the 90s mr ragunath had to mm. undergo one of these sessions before being What? expelled from china in 1967 or 1968 because allegedly he was taking photographs at a place where he should not have been taking photographs now of course there was no truth to that but at that point of time india china relations were undergoing a bit of stress in 67 and 68 and this was a way of messaging india that uh, uh, the chinese were displeased so it is an extreme in in its extreme form uh, it can be injurious to health and in some cases fatal as well uh and uh, uh, any any of your listeners who are interested in this should read books on the cultural revolution um mm. to know about this because the most extreme forms of criticism and self criticism took place there but i don't think we should assume that the most extreme form is what is practiced now as i said mm. what is practiced now is to put the individuals in their place and give them the opportunity to sort of redeem themselves and in that sense it's a disciplinary procedure Hmm. Yes, during the Cultural Revolution, I've read it went down even like with students and uh, uh, teachers. Yes, that sort of confrontation and uh, that's right. What I found interesting was how uh, you put out, uh, you know, the Western media's inability to understand the Chinese, the lies that were like, especially in the case of um, 
the hunger strike you know and that not ever being uh, people breaking the the leaders breaking hunger the hunger strike and that never being uh, uh, put out you know those sort of things yes well you know uh, manjula to me of course uh, in in their favor in the favor of the western media i have to put a caveat which is okay. that this was the cold war Uh, mm-hmm. there were two sides in the world the good guys who were the free world the americans mm-hmm. and their allies and the bad guys according to them which was the soviet union and the communists and the socialists and so on uh, and to some extent that polarization was not only there in, in uh, between governments but also in the media and in public opinion which media represents at the end of the day mm. so mm. to some extent the perspective of uh, journalists and media persons in beijing uh, from the western press carried that bias with them uh, however i do believe that uh, to some extent the western press went beyond that natural bias Uh, in order to find stories which in a sense did not represent the full facts or twisted them now mm. for me this was interesting as a a young person in his 20s because i had grown up in india and actually uh, just begun my university when the emergency was declared and okay. i remember from those days how we had been sort of led to believe that the indian media was biased and could not be trusted and we should get our news from the bbc for instance there was no cnn at that time but the bbc uh, and therefore i had grown up with the view that western media was generally unbiased therefore for me seeing the way in which western media reported in beijing that myth came apart and uh, uh, some of the stories that reported were Uh, um, a mixture of fact and fiction including mm-hmm. when the martial law was declared on the 20th of may 1989 and mm-hmm. subsequently the western media began to put out reports of a, a major power struggle within the party and even reports of rival units of the chinese people's liberation army ranged against each other and ready to do battle in beijing now mm-hmm. uh, people fr- like us in the indian embassy who went around the city almost until the 3rd of june did not mm. see any evidence of this even in places mm. which were referred to in the western media so for me i think the scales fell off my eyes uh, mm. i don't mean to intend by this to say that all the western media was uh, reporting was biased in fact there was mm. some excellent reporting from the western media including from cnn which was the new phenomenon the new kid on mm. the block as it were but mm. yes uh there was an agenda that some of the western media had and for me uh that was the first lesson i had in terms of how to read international media uh that is a view that i have continued to hold uh, subsequently as well manjula because in other points of my life uh, when i was covering other events in other parts of the world i also saw that kind of biased reporting so mm-hmm. i think uh, one of the uh, important messages uh, for the indian reader is that uh, uh, media like everybody else also has biases we are all ultimately yes. human beings my book is also biased it is not objective mm-hmm. it is subjective um, mm-hmm. but uh, we have to be able to judge uh, for ourselves and not accept everything uh, written by anybody uh, whether it is the media whether it is an academic whether it is a political leader as the, uh, the the truth and nothing but the truth 
That was Vijay Gokhale, author of Tiananmen Square: The Making of a Protest. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.